Amen. Thank you, choir. The majesty of God's name is greatly to be praised. You know, I was convicted recently. I read a blog post that said that when you're, even as a preacher, when you're in worship service, you need to worship and to proclaim the majesty and glory of the name of our Lord and Savior. And sometimes I, I start, you know, the wheels are turning and I'm, I'm critiquing the service and I'm thinking what we should change and what we need to do differently and what, you know, time you know, constraints and all those things. I hope that you're able just to sit and worship when you come into this place and let everything else just fall away. Coronavirus, tornadoes, all that we have going on, upcoming marriage, we have engaged couples here, we have people who are visiting from out of town, we have a lot of things that are happening in our world, but I pray that just in these moments that you can just worship, proclaim the majesty and glory of the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're going to hear from his word today, from Matthew chapter 3. It's actually, we're talking about a Lenten journey with Jesus. This is actually the front runner of Jesus. We're going to look at a passage about John the Baptist today, and I'm, I'm so glad to be back in this pulpit. The, the pulpit I was in last Sunday was um, a bit nerve-wracking. Uh, in Belarus, you're not supposed to meet as a church unless you're registered with the federal government. And the church that I was preaching in was an underground church. It was not registered. And uh, you're not supposed to have a foreigner preach either, um, with the Bible especially. So we, we took a lot of risk. It was a bit, uh, like I said, a bit nerve-wracking. I'm, I'm still a bit jet-lagged. And uh, whoever had the idea, I don't know if it was Don Abel or not, to have an 8 a.m. finance committee meeting uh, on the day of the spring forward, let's fix that next year. No more uh, 8 o'clock meetings on uh, Spring Forward Day, but uh, the, the good news is that the Lord speaks in our weaknesses, that his strength is made perfect. So uh, I hope that you will hear a word from him today. I'm so grateful to our staff for keeping everything running uh, last week while I was gone. I'm particularly grateful to Scotty Smith, one of my just favorite preachers, as, as Trey said last week, who brought a, a really uh, encouraging and, and beautiful message about going through Lent with hope and with the joy of uh, God's grace, even in dry seasons. I didn't realize that Christ Prez started at Hillsborough High School, just like Woodmont Baptist did. Hillsborough has been kind of an incubator for these uh, great churches over the years. I have the, the highest respect for Scotty, and, and some of the pastors that I was with in Belarus are friends with Scotty as well. And, and Morgan texted me a picture of Scotty in the pulpit here, and uh, I showed it to some of my pastor friends, and, and they said, is he wearing shoes? I said, what? Of course he's wearing shoes, I, I assume. But Morgan cut off his, you can only see from the knees up. And they said, oh, you gotta tell her to get a picture because I bet he's wearing his sandals. Apparently it's very rare that Scotty actually wears real shoes. So it's a testament to his esteem for Woodmont and to his grace that he actually wore black dress shoes last week instead of his Birkenstock sandals that he normally wears. So. Thank you to Scotty for uh, accommodating and, and condescending to us. Scotty asked the Lord in his opening prayer that Lent would be a time for us to slow down and to abide in the love of God. I'm reading a book right now about St. Augustine who said that our souls are restless until they rest in the Lord. 
I don't know if you feel restless today. I can't wait for my afternoon nap today. I need some rest. I know many of you are weary. The news can absolutely wear your soul out. My prayer for us is during this Lenten season, as the days lengthen, is what Lent means, that we would be able to slow down and abide in the love and in the grace of our Lord and Savior. It's more of a time for gospel transformation rather than self-reflection. It's a time for new life as we see the bud. I was talking to Sandy Hicks about the buds coming out on the, the bushes and the trees in my backyard. New life in this springtime season. I love too how Scotty said that Lent is a time for lifting Jesus up, not for beating ourselves up. We just sang that song, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. It's a time for gospeling, for evangelizing, for speaking the good news, not for groveling. We gather each week to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it truly is good, good news. And we don't, be, we don't beg and plead over and over again with the Lord for mercy. It's a time for self-denial, yes, but it's not a time for self-loathing. It's good to prepare our hearts for Easter by disciplining ourselves, maybe giving something up, maybe focusing on fasting during this season, but it's not a time to despise ourselves. It's a season of fresh conviction, Holy Spirit conviction, but not old condemnation, because there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a time for repentant faith, not a time for penitent works. We repent, yes, that's what the sermon's about today, but we don't work towards penitence or penance. You know, works of penance are an attempt to put a bigger smile on the face of God, and nothing that we do could do that because Jesus Christ has already accomplished our full satisfaction in the, in the presence of the Lord. God could not delight in his children any more than he possibly does right now. Do you believe that? I hope so. We couldn't earn God's favor because we already have it because of what Jesus has done. Finally, it's a time for cross-surveying, not a time for navel-gazing. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus during these 40 days. Let's look full in his wonderful face and let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his amazing glory and grace, the majesty and glory of his name. So we're gonna continue in this season of Lent by looking at a passage that does call us to repentant faith, like Rachel said earlier. Matthew chapter three, verses one, to eight, uh, one through eight. I encourage you to stand if you're able to this morning in honor of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I think the word repent has gotten a bad reputation in our current culture. It, it may be third to only hell or wrath as words that kind of make us squirm. Repentance, confession, those kinds of things. If you're honest, maybe you don't really enjoy hearing those words. Maybe they make you a little uncomfortable. I've heard people use the word repentance sarcastically after they order a huge piece of cheesecake, the server brings it and sets it in front of them, they say, oh, I need to repent. Repentance is seen as giving up something that's good or something that's fun. And that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about repentance. Repentance in the Bible is about turning away from sin, just like Knox said, that was a great answer there, Knox. Turning away from our sin and turning back towards the throne of God, looking to his glory and grace. The idea of repentance in both the Old and New Testament is like someone who's just running towards the edge of a cliff, and they stop, they make a decision to stop, and they turn around, and they go back to the right direction. To repent literally means to change one's mind. You know, I don't think I actually want to go that way, I think I'll stop, I think I'll turn and go the other way. I have the joy and privilege of coaching Jude's fourth grade basketball team uh, for the, this is the third year I think in a row that I've gotten to coach his basketball team. And you know, one of the big challenges in children's sports I'm learning is just knowing which goal is yours, right? Just know which one to go on. This poor kid, we had a tournament this weekend, March Madness tournament. And this poor kid on the other team got a defensive rebound, which means he should have gone that way. And he was so excited that he got the ball. What did he do? Put it right back up into our goal, right? Some of you have done it. I know you have. I coached May's soccer team. This is second graders this past fall. And the first thing I would do is say, okay, everybody, come here. Everybody, come here. Point to which goal we're going towards, all right? Everybody point to it with your hand right now. That was the number one thing. If we could get them to go the right direction, that's like half the battle right there. Just know which way to go. Repentance is about knowing which way to go. It's about knowing the right direction. It's about knowing when you are going in the wrong direction and making the conscious decision to stop, to turn, and go back towards the right goal. How many people have made a shipwreck of their lives because they've been going towards the wrong goal? How many people have just ruined their lives because they were aiming for the wrong goal? They were looking in the wrong direction and full speed ahead, running right towards the wrong goal. Repentance is that call to turn from the wrong direction and to head back in the right way. 
In our text for today, we see how John, who's the, the cousin of Jesus, the front runner of the king who makes straight the paths, he, he fulfills that Elijah role from Old Testament prophecy. He's, he's the greatest prophet. In, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus calls him the greatest prophet that ever lived. And, and remember, this is after this 400 years of silence, where after Malachi, there were no prophets. There was no word from the Lord during this 400-year intertestamental period until John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. It says he's preaching and he's baptizing out by the Jordan River. And in verse 2, we see in this text here what his message was. What was the content of his preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, John's not concerned with drawing a crowd. He, he doesn't dress to impress. He doesn't preach to impress either. He's concerned with fulfilling his God-given duty to proclaim the message that the people of Jerusalem needed to hear. He doesn't dress up in fancy clothes of a preacher. He's in camel hair. He survives on locusts and wild honey when he can find it. And his message isn't a, a six-week series to a better you or to have a better job or to have a better marriage. He doesn't preach about how to have success at home or at work, how to receive God's bountiful blessings of prosperity. He's not concerned with that. His message is one of repentance. What was the message that Jesus preached? Look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus had been tested in the wilderness in verse 17, he preached his first sermon. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the exact same message that John the Baptist preached. And what did the disciples preach when Jesus sent them out two by two to go into the villages and the towns and proclaim the gospel? What did they preach? Mark Chapter 6, verse 12 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. The message they were given was one of repentance. What about in the book of Acts? When the apostles preach, every time they preach, we're going to begin a 33-week series in the book of Acts starting April 19th. It'll run through November 29th. Get ready. Not every verse. We're going to skip some, but it's going to be good. What was the message that Peter proclaimed? His first public sermon, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls on the believers at Pentecost, Peter stands up boldly and proclaims the gospel to all the, the, the people in Jerusalem. What's his message? Acts 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that Rachel just talked about. 3,000 people received that word of repentance when Peter preached that word, and they were added to that First Baptist Church of Jerusalem that day, grew from 120 people to 3,120 in one day. That's some good church growth strategy. What did Paul preach on the streets of Athens? All the learned, sophisticated Greek Scholars, what message did Paul proclaim to them? Acts chapter 17, verse 30. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Repentance, that's the, the, the message that the world needed in this time. And it's also the message that we need in our time today. Just because we as the church are, are covered by the blood of Christ and we can approach the throne boldly like Aaron read from Hebrews chapter four earlier, doesn't mean that we, as soon as you give your life to Christ, you're automatically headed in the right direction. It doesn't mean that. Paul says we still wrestle against our flesh. We still are at war with our sinful nature. Therefore, as Christians, we need to repent. How often, Nathan? Every day. We need to repent constantly, sometimes every hour, sometimes every minute. Repentance is not something you do once. Repentance is about realigning our lives' trajectory with God's trajectory. Sometimes I get off on my own course, and repentance realigns my course back with the course that God has for me and more importantly for his kingdom, the path that leads to flourishing now and for eternity. So two key questions for us today. Why should we repent and then how should we repent? Why should we repent and how do we do it? First, on the question of why do we repent, look at John's message again in verse two. There's an urgency to his call to repent. Why do we repent? Because the kingdom of heaven has now come near. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the synoptic gospels, the kingdom is the most important topic in Jesus's preaching. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's the same thing. What are we talking about when we say the kingdom of God? What does that mean? The kingdom isn't something that, that exists, it's something that happens. The kingdom is something active. The kingdom is about God's rule and his reign and his will being done. It's an activity. It's not something passive. It's not a place you go to. It's something you live into. God's rule, his reign, and his will being done perfectly. That's the kingdom. The kingdom of God is wherever God's will is being executed in the right way. Sometimes we get to see the kingdom breaking into our world. I, I love to hear the stories about our city loving our neighbors. I loved that Hillsborough needed $8,100 to pay off their lunch debt. We raised $8,300, got a little $200 bonus in there for them as we paid off the balance of their lunch debt. We talked about it in finance committee today. The check's been sent. Praise God for loving your neighbor well. I got a, a, a handwritten letter from the principal uh, who was just so grateful to Woodmont Baptist Church for stepping up and loving our neighbors. I love to see Jamie's post on social media about love your neighbor. She's boldly putting it out there for all of her clientele to see. She's a, a believer who believes in loving our neighbors in tangible, active ways. And this city is, is seeing Christians rise up 
and show what it means to love our neighbors in times of catastrophe and disaster. That's the kingdom breaking into our world. We see the kingdom break in when someone hears the gospel for the first time and repents and believes. That's the kingdom breaking in as they move from death to life for eternity in a trillion year investment. We see the kingdom break in when people are, are actively playing their part in God's purposes for our neighbors and for the world. I saw the kingdom breaking in Belarus with young pastors and young church planners all over Minsk and around the whole area that were passionate about the gospel and willing to go to jail and, and, and defy the federal authorities in order to be a church planning movement of house churches and underground churches that spread the gospel throughout a very cold and dark communist country. They're not communist technically, but they still are pretty communist. Nowhere else, though, is the inbreaking of the kingdom more evident than when God himself put on flesh and moved into our neighborhood in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only has the kingdom physically come to earth in the form of Jesus, but the king himself has come. He's the one who's ushered in this whole new inbreaking movement of the kingdom. John was playing his part in getting everybody ready for this glorious unfolding of God's plan to bring redemption, the incarnation, God with us, healing, teaching, and ultimately dying and rising again. The fact that God has sent the king himself to come and establish his kingdom on earth means that God is on a rescue mission and he's establishing his kingdom like never before. It's like a massive military operation that, that really aggressively advances the front lines well beyond what they previously were as the enemy is driven out. This calls for a necessary response. The fact that God is doing something so great in bringing his kingdom to earth means we have a choice. Will we respond to that inbreaking of the kingdom with repentance or will we ignore it? That's the why of repentance. Because God's kingdom has come, we therefore should quit going our own way and align our life's trajectory with the kingdom of God. We repent as a response to the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven on earth. God's reign and rule has come to us. We can change our minds about following this world now and choose to live in God's kingdom. So what about the how? How do we repent? I love uh, Doug O'Donnell's commentary on Matthew. He gives us three steps for repentance that we see in our text for today. First, look at verses five and six. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins, that's the first step of repentance, confession. We see in this chapter a revival breaking out in the wilderness. Every time there's a revival in history, confession of sin is always at the root of it. It's always a mass corporate confession of sins, both individually and corporately. 
we see these city dwellers from Jerusalem who are flocking in droves out to the river to this wild man, John, and they're caught up in this spiritual awakening. They'd waited 400 years for a word from the Lord, and here's John the Baptist proclaiming the kingdom of God is now at hand. They believe him, and then they confess that they've been wrong about their lives thus far. They confess that they are needy and that they are in need of salvation that is outside of themselves. Confession of sin is the starting point for genuine repentance. You know, confession is really just being honest about the reality of your sin. In Psalm 32, verse 5, David, the psalmist, says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I just acknowledged the reality. And I did not cover my iniquity. We do that all the time. We say, oh, I'm good. I got it all together. No, you don't. I don't either. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs 28, 13, Solomon says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, I'm good. I'm doing great. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know where I see this confession of sin demonstrated uh, in very clear and tangible ways is celebrate recovery. Those guys have no pretense. They show up and they say, we're broken, we're needy. They confess that they are uh, in a tough place. They, they start out the 12 steps. 12 steps are really about repentance, aren't they? They're, it's about repenting. You start out admitting that you need help and that you can't help yourself. Your life has become unmanageable. And then step three is about turning your life over to God, surrendering to him. Then step four says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Moral inventory. I like that fearless moral inventory. And step five says we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That's confession. There's power in confession. Confession is the first step in, in shedding those chains of bondage that sin puts on our lives. Confession is a way to throw those chains off and say, those aren't going to hold me back anymore. I confess the reality of my sin. You, you shed those chains of self-delusion and you begin to deal with reality. The second step in repentance is baptism. When I say baptism, I don't mean putting on a white robe and, and letting me dunk you up here. That's not what I'm talking about. Baptism is a powerful symbol. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality of something that has changed dramatically inside of you. When we baptize someone, it's a symbol of their repentance. The water symbolizes both the, the washing away of sin, but it also symbolizes new birth and a whole new kind of life. When Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, he, the Corinthian church was a mess. You think we got problems? They got a lot of problems. He told them to quit fighting over who baptized who. 
In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's basically saying that the, the water baptism that they've experienced is not as important as what happened on the inside, their baptism in the Holy Spirit. The fact that the Spirit has now come and given them new birth, that they're growing younger on the inside even as they outwardly waste away. The new birth comes when people hear the gospel preached and repent and believe. Faith, repentance, baptism, forgiveness, it's all one continuous act of God's saving grace on his children. That's why Ephesians 4 verse 5 says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That leads to the last step of repentance, fruit. Thank you, Rachel, for, I think that banana was in my outer office, wasn't it? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for removing that. I noticed something smelled a little off in there. Look at verses 7 and 8. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So step one is that the Spirit convicts us of our sin and we confess our sin. Step two is that we're baptized in the Spirit. We're born again to new life. And step three comes when the Spirit abides in us and it enables us to bear good fruit. The fruits of the Spirit are clear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. The proof of repentance comes in the kind of fruit that we're actually bearing out in our lives. You know, so many evangelicals assume that just because they've walked the aisle or because some preacher dunked them in the water, that they're good. That they're going to heaven now, even though they live like hell. It's not fruit in keeping with repentance. In a Bible Belt culture, like the one we still live in here in Nashville, yes, it's still the buckle of the Bible Belt. I'm convinced there's so many unconverted, unspiritual people who've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who sit in the pews of our churches all across this city every week. They may give money. They may be leaders in the church, but they have no real fruit from the repentance that they've never experienced. John calls us here to live in accordance with the reality of what has happened inside of us. He calls out religious people like me in verse seven, calling them the offspring of vipers. He's basically saying, you're not the children of God, you're the children of Satan, the serpent. You know, these, these gospels convict me so much because who was Jesus the harshest on? Who was John the Baptist the harshest on when they, when they spoke words of condemnation? It was the religious people. I'm a Baptist preacher at a traditional Baptist church. Who's more religious than me? Would Jesus today have the same kind of harsh words for me as he did for the Pharisees back in his own day? I don't know. I sure hope not. We need to be careful that we're not just playing church, but that we're bearing fruit in keeping with the repentance. These Pharisees and Sadducees were Jewish 
people who were very religious, but they assumed that because their ancestor Abraham, since he was reckoned righteous through his faith, that they were okay with God as well. But we need to make sure that we don't think that we're okay because of any external thing that's happened to us, but that an inward new birth has actually happened, that we are regenerated and made new from the inside out. And that only can be proven by what our fruit bears out. Look at verses nine and 10. We didn't read these earlier. John said, don't presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That sounds like John 15. We can bear no fruit on our own, but we have to remain connected to Jesus the vine. We are just the branches. And the branches that don't bear fruit are not good for anything. And therefore, they, they go into the fire. It's all they're good for at that point. Repentant people, truly repentant people, people who've heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ bear fruit, spiritual fruit. They love God. They truly love him. They love others, even people who are annoying, people who are a drain on society. They love these people. And they make disciples of Jesus Christ. They prove that they've landed on the third step of repentance. They've gone through the first step of spirit conviction and confession. Then they've gone through the second step of spirit baptism. And now they bear spiritual fruit. Again, this is not a one-time thing that happens. This is something I need every day to realign myself by repenting. St. Ignatius of Loyola has a, uh, something called the examine that he came up with as a spiritual exercise for his followers. And what this is, is at night, when you go to bed, you examine your day. And part of the examine is to ask the Lord to show you where you've fallen short that day. It's incredibly humbling to think back, oh, the way I spoke to my wife was really harsh. The way that I ignored that person in the hallway at church because I was too busy thinking about something else, I was falling short. The way that I was hard on my kids today, the way that I, I didn't give what I should have given to uh, the time and attention that my family needed, whatever I, I've fallen short in, it's painfully obvious to me that I fall short of God's glory every day. Therefore, repentance reminds me that I need the Lord every hour. I need the every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, Savior, I come to thee in repentance. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee in repentance. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Repent for the kingdom of God is still very much at hand. Let's pray.
Lord God, we come to you acknowledging, confessing the reality of our sin. God, the truth is that our flesh is so weak that the temptations that surround us are overwhelming for our flesh alone. We need you every hour to come and realign our hearts, to come and show us where we've fallen short, to come and lead us into the path of righteousness that leads to flourishing, both for our own lives, but more importantly, for your kingdom. God, we confess that Woodmont Baptist Church has not been the body of Christ that you've called us to be, that we have fallen short corporately by the things that we've done, things that we've left undone. God, we pray that you would raise up Woodmont to be a healthy, effective church that faithfully lives out our calling to love you with all of our, our hearts and souls and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ out of every nation. God, I pray that you would come now and remind us that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Help us to claim the absolution, not given to us by a priest, but only by our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who claims now that our sins are paid for and atoned in full, and that we are not condemned by the, the one who would accuse us, but we stand justified in your holy presence 